Hey guys, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, we're joined by New York Times columnist Charles Blow to discuss what he calls an audacious power play that could result in black voters controlling up to 14 Senate seats. It's all in his new book, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. Plus, how AOC is changing the media game and what's suddenly attracting a lot of white people to black neighborhoods Hmm. and a brand new segment we're sharing some of our favorite black creations what we're watching reading and smelling we'll explain so this puppy we for those who don't know the puppy's now a recurring character in the podcast but the puppy is now four weeks into his his forever home here um and he after having a very good week last week has been um testing us a little bit this week uh, and so I was reading David Grand's Killers of the Flower Moon about the history of the FBI and these murders on these Native American uh, reservations in Oklahoma. And Freddie wanted to read it too. And so now I only have half of a book left um, because he ate the other half. Um, and then earlier today, he had found uh, his mother is a big fan of the poet June Jordan. And so I had gotten her some first editions and some of them signed uh, for Christmas. And uh, he enjoyed one of those overnight, it seems like. Uh, and so the puppy got a stern talking to. It's a very good literary taste, but um, it got a talking to. And, and so it's been, a, it's been a bit of a trying week. But you had the puppy like, for like three weeks, right? Yeah, I think this is week four. I think we're in week four. So so you already ahead of the game, though. That I mean, the dog can read in three weeks. <laughs> like, the dog is reading. And he's getting, yeah. like, the finest literature, too. Yeah. Doesn't know his name. Doesn't know his name. But the great Black poets, he's got that. Go. But you know what's so great about that? He's acting out because he's comfortable. And so you guys have made him feel at home. And now he's ready to chew shit up. Well, that was the thing. He was so calm those first few days. He just sat on the couch. He didn't do anything. He never barked. And now he's like, this is my house. I do whatever I want. Let's get into some news. So AOC went on her IG Live last night um, and talked about her experience and during the Capitol siege and how, uh, how dangerous it was, how, how she felt, how her colleagues responded to what, was, to what was going on around them. Between these screams and these yells of, where is she? Where is she? And so... I go down and I just, I mean, I thought I was going to die. I felt that um, if this was the journey that my life was taking, that I felt that things were going to be okay. Did either one of you uh, take a look at that, at at her IG live? I, I saw when she went live, but I didn't have the opportunity to actually watch her. I watched big chunks of it. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I, but I saw a, a good a good portion of it. I watched the entire thing. And, you know, I was really struck by what an excellent storyteller she is. You know, uh, journalists fancy ourselves as storytellers. And she is an exceptional storyteller. She is able to string out a story to have you on the edge of your seat where you are waiting for the next detail. She offers vivid details and descriptions. So that was one thing that, caught me right from the top is how much, how good she is at telling stories, but also how well she knows her audience. You know, she knows that people have a lot of questions about what happened and she has made it her mission to be very transparent. And she did that. She was incredibly transparent about her fears. She disclosed um, a sexual assault that she has never spoken about before and was able to, you know, kind of make the connection between the Un- unhealed trauma that sexual assault survivors often feel and how it ties on to, to new traumas, um, which I think a lot of people can relate to. And I think the most powerful argument she made is that this, this quest to move on without addressing what happened, she said, is the behavior of abusers. And I think a lot of people felt that because a lot of people have suffered abuse. And that gaslighting and that denial and that refusal to accept responsibility and that denial of accountability is really, really painful. And people could relate to that on a personal level. We can't just move on. And I think that's that's what her goal was, to remind the country that we can't just move on from this. 
you know, yeah, one, I, is, one I actually go, wrote about that in my column last week, uh, which was five five things that we can't afford to, to forget now that the Trump era, now that the Trump administration is over. And one of those things is you can't have healing without accountability uh, at, a, at a broad scale. Like we are at a place in this country where, where many people have suffered great harm. And I'm not just talking about the rhetoric. I'm talking about actual policy uh, in terms of how people have been have been treated uh, and, and disabused by the prior administration um, and leading leading all the way up to that particular violent incident inside the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and within days, uh, we started to hear calls for reconciliation and for and for healing and for, you know, working across the aisle. Um, and frankly, it's, it's, it's all bullshit. I mean, you can't, not to say that bipartisanship is, is BS. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can't have true bipartisanship and you can't have true partnership uh, in government when one set or one group is a bad actor and hasn't take, either taken responsibility or been forced to take responsibility through some consequence. Uh, of their of their actions. Second thing I think about AOC, you talked about her being a storyteller. Um, I've had so I so in my career out outside of journalism, I've worked for two two different and very successful politicians. Uh, the late great Elijah Cummings, who I interned for right out of college, and um, for a brief time, the former mayor of Atlanta, Kazim Reed. Good retail politicians are always great storytellers. You could never catch Elijah Cummings when he could not tell you a story that would make some part of your life experience relatable to something that he wanted to do vis-a-vis a policy aim or just a broader overall political philosophy. Um, that was one of that was one of his gifts. So I think that 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 works very well for AOC. You know, the thing that strikes me about her that I think is so important, and it's hard to fully grasp what the power is going to be, but she unlike any other politician I can think of. I think she's, Barack Obama did this in some ways, but not nearly to the extent she has. She has built herself a following and a connection to her supporters and has grown that bench of people. Uh, frankly, I think Donald Trump is probably the, the answer to the, the closest to that, where, you know, for most politicians, this would have been a 60 Minutes interview or it would have been a sit down on, the, on a morning show. Um, it, she made a conscious decision to do this on her own, to run it the way she wanted to run it, to broadcast it the way she wants to broadcast it, to consolidate that media attention and that reach into her own brand. Anyone who followed her on Instagram yesterday because they wanted to see this will now follows her on Instagram. And I think that that ability and that desire to speak directly to people in a lot of ways is the politics of the future. Um, and, and I think that that to me is as interesting as any other part of this. Now, look, this was a very newsmaking interview besides her talking about uh, the specifics of her prior sexual assault and the trauma, which is unquestionably news and something new, just the specifics of what happened to her that day. She is one of the most vulnerable members of Congress because she has such an outsized public persona. She's been so villainized and demonized by the right wing that finding out what actually happened to her on that day is major news. And again, I think there's something to be said for the fact that she chose to do that in the medium that she did, um, similar to the way that when Beyonce has news, we're not finding out in a sit-down interview, or when LeBron has news, we're not finding out in a sit-down interview. The idea of the kind of celebrity politician, I think is something that's very interesting. It doesn't work for everyone. I don't think a bunch of people are jumping on Joe Manchin's IG Live, but there, it is something, there's something very interesting about the way that she, um, that it can use her celebrity, and I, don't, and I don't mean that in any derogatory way, right, but that she is a remarkably famous politician and how she continues to build those kind of direct connections um, is something that I think kind of continues to build her political power out in the world. Um, it's a separate question to what extent the people in her own caucus, much less in the, among the Republicans, uh, you know, see her as powerful or, or grant her power and, and, and ability to do what she wants to do. Absolutely. Let's let's move on to the second headline where a nine-year-old girl uh, was pepper sprayed. The police were called because she was uh, having a family issue, quote unquote, uh, with her mother. 
Uh, the police showed up and that incident ended up with the with the little girl being slammed in the snow, stuffed into a police car and pepper sprayed uh, with multiple while multiple officers stood and watched. Get in the car. You've had your chance. Get in the car now. Okay. Okay. You've had your chances. Ah. Sit up. No. You're acting like a child. I want to him a child. I look at this as a father, right? I know that this is supposed to be a show where we talk about our experiences as journalists and bring some some light to the issue. Uh, but I've been I've been writing about this and I've struggled with writing about it because I can I can only see a nine year old girl being pepper sprayed, regardless of what the circumstances are. I can only look at it through the lens of a father. And um, yeah, it. it, it did you watch it, Keith? Did you I, watch the video? Um, I've watched parts of it. I've commit I've committed myself to not I've committed myself to in as much as possible, which is very hard to do in the job that we have, but I've committed myself to not exposing myself repeatedly to the trauma of black folks, of people in general being abused um by police. We see it too often. And I think there's a danger of, of being either traumatized by it or being desensitized to it. And so I tried, tried not to watch a ton of it. I am writing about it. So I had to, so I had to watch at least some of it. I don't know that there are any more words that we can use to bring any more light to this. And I don't understand what kind of, the point at which you can look at one of your colleagues as you're both armed, um, with weapons, looking at a nine-year-old girl without without regard to to like what her mental state is, and say to that person, "Just spray her at this point," and then respond, and then that person then respond to to the command and say, "Okay," and then and use pepper spray on a nine-year-old. I got I got to tell you something. That would if if it were if it were my daughter, if it were somebody in my family, that doesn't end well. It just did that, and I, and I'll leave it at that. That doesn't end well. But that doesn't end well for anybody. But that's what. Well, the first thing I'll say about this is, you know, I didn't watch it, and the reason I didn't watch it is because of you guys. I used to feel a duty to bear witness to these acts, and we had a conversation about this. God help me, I don't even remember what shooting it was. We had a conversation about this with Natasha Alfred, Alfred from the Grio. And all three of you said, you don't watch these videos anymore because it's too upsetting. And you gave me permission to protect my peace, that I can read about it, I can be informed, but I don't have to keep traumatizing myself over and over again. And that's something that was reinforced when I was reading Charles Blow's book, which we're gonna talk about in a minute, which he refers to as a vicarious trauma, which he makes a comparison to the photos of lynchings and the quote unquote trinkets that people would take from lynchings, which included limbs and parts of bodies and fingers, and how that traumatized every black person that witnessed it. You didn't have to have ever been lynched to be traumatized by a lynching. And so it has now changed my view on watching these things. And I have a nine-year-old daughter. So I don't need to see a nine-year-old black girl being treated like an animal. And what you're speaking to, Keith, of, of the other officers, we often hear about the bad apples, right? The one bad apple, the one bad apple. But then what the community says is, well, what about the rest of them who were standing around? Or what about the rest of them who helped them cover it up after the fact and they all converged on the same lie? Or what about the rest of them who lied to investigators or stonewalled or hid information or didn't completely fill out the police report? And that's the problem. If it was what, if Wesley, if I knew that you were lying in a piece of journalism, that you were just making shit up. I would never refer you to anybody. I would never call you a good journalist. I would never say a nice, I would get as far away from you as possible. I'd be like, that dude's a plagiarizer and a liar and I don't want anything to do with him. But we don't see that in the police force. They just close ranks. And, and, and in fact, we see the opposite, right? So in this instance, one of, one of the biggest uh, parts of this has been the response of the police union. The president of the police union in Rochester, uh, gave a press conference where he's asked very directly about his um, uh, about the behavior that he saw from from the officers. He said with a straight face that he didn't see anything wrong with what they did. Because it's hard to get people any, into police cars. That's what he said. It's that, hard. It's hard he, to get people into police cars. It's hard to get people in in police cars. Uh, and and, well, and, and, and he that said, he actually he thought that, that they showed. 
restraint, right? What you say? Restraint. Like he, was, he was saying that, that it could have been worse. No injury to her. If had they had to go and push further and, and use more force, there's a good chance she could have been hurt worse. Hurt. It's it's very very difficult to get somebody into the back of a police car like that. If they had gone in to try to like wrestle her, she might have gotten injured. So he was basically a key to the point you're making. Uh, you know, someone who's covered a lot of policing and as Mara notes, I don't watch these videos unless I'm writing about them anymore. There was a time where I felt like I had to watch all of them. And as someone who does write about many of them, I know that I'm getting my fill. Um, but I don't watch. So I haven't seen this video in part because I've made a conscious decision not to watch it. But as you noted, the, you know, in these cases, the unions almost always jump in in a defense role. And two things are true. Right. I'm a member of the union via my job um, as a writer. And, and I think the unions uh, are really important in terms of making sure we all are getting paid and being treated fairly. And that there are uh, the right types of processes for when we get in trouble. But one of the major differences is, and I've said this, and I've talked to this, talked about this with police union leaders. If I was caught plagiarizing, the writers union would not hold a press conference and say anyone who is criticizing him is anti-media and you've never placed yourself in the shoes <laughs> right? of a reporter and you don't know. And, and look, these online critics don't know what they don't know. It doesn't show everything. And that the reality is it's both extremely important for individual police officers to have a fairness of process, but the police unions themselves have taken a role um, over the course of decades where they try to put as much protection for police officers into these contracts as possible, very often making it impossible to discipline them, no matter what they've done. And then also act very publicly as public defense attorneys, as opposed to just being the attorneys behind the scenes, helping things out. And very often shape the, the coverage of the, of the story itself, releasing information about the victim, releasing information about the incident, trying to frame the public perception in a way that we just don't see happening in almost any other labor context. So our last headline, and I wanted to get to this because the the important story of the last week or one of the important stories of the last week uh, was about what happened on Wall Street, the, the, the hedge fund bigwigs versus the little guy investor. Um, and something that that happened tangentially to that. So one by the name of uh, Arlen Hamilton, who uh, if folks follow her, uh, her social media presence is a, uh, a black woman venture capitalist. And she actually opened up her fund to allow everyday average investors to invest with her and to share in some of the returns that her venture capital fund uh, might yield from the investments that they, that they make in uh, in various companies, um, which is a which is a, a big thing. But I just thought that it was an important story, just in 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 the background, um, with what happened last week with with GameStop shares and BlackBerry shares and with um, and and with AMC shares and this group on Reddit uh, that that took aim at institutional capital in, the, in this country, right? I would love to do a money episode. Like you mentioned, bringing Damon John on, her. I wanna That'd do like dope. a, where the money reside. That would be really dope. You seem I to know a lot about money. Mara. I think, I think Mara's lying. <laughs> Mara's yeah. Mara got she's not telling the truth. I'm just playing dumb. I'm just playing dumb. Cause I don't want either one of you to call me and ask him to borrow money. That's she she made like 4 million <laughs> off GameStop this week. And it isn't I'll tell, tell you right now, I, I would, First of all, I would never call you to borrow money. I would text you. <laughs> and also a rule that I do live by, when you loan money to friends, consider it a gift. Because yeah, it's never come back. It, it, and it can ruin ruin the friendship. Um, Definitely. And there was something else that we wanted. Wasn't there a fourth one that we were going to talk about? So there's a story in the New York in, in the New York Times, and I'll just read you the top the top of the story and it'd be a great segue to bring in to bring in uh Charles. As soon as the city began offering COVID vaccines to residents 65 or older, George Jones, whose nonprofit runs a medical clinic, noticed something striking. And here's the quote. Suddenly, our clinic was full of white people, said Mr. Jones. <laughs> the head of bread for the city was to provide services to the poor. We'd never had that before. We serve people who are disproportionately African-American. And it goes on to talking, talking about how this has played out 
around the country that in these areas that are that that have tended to be low income that have tended that have tended to be uh, primarily African American, primarily immigrant, primarily primarily uh, Latinx, where you've seen these influxes of uh, of of wealthy white folks coming into these clinics because in where they live, they might not necessarily have access to the COVID-19 vaccine, but in some of these nonprofit clinics that, that exist in, in these poorer and more diverse areas, the vaccines are available. And by right, you can't tell somebody who shows up for that service that we can't serve you because you're white or because you're wealthy. So, and they know this, so they show up. Uh, and of course it has a, a, a detrimental impact on the community that, that's being served. I will say this. Uh, I'm gonna be in politics for a minute, which is hard for me. I I grew up, I grew <laughs> sure. up in some, I grew up in some in some projects, and then I've seen a lot of things. And one of the things I've seen in, in my life that that makes me not surprised by this at all is that you know on 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 any given first of the month, uh, when 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 the checks are being distributed, and when you start to see certain activity on certain uh, on certain street corners in certain communities. It wasn't always us. It wasn't always us lined up. It wasn't always it wasn't always people who lived in the neighborhood who showed up to procure certain certain things that you couldn't necessarily get out of a legitimate pharmacy, right? Mm -hmm. So this is just to me not not surprising at all. Like we didn't we didn't see some people who didn't live around our way show up looking looking you know looking for that good package when it came out. Um, and oh, in this that's instance, what you're talking about. I'm oh, from, Laura. No, I'm from the Ma suburbs. I'm like, Laura's what? like, what were they buying? What? Exactly. <laughs> what, services? what goods and services could they what only get you? in your neighborhood? <laughs> what? Whatever do you mean? Mara, you live in Harlem. Yet. I do now, but I'm what from you, the suburbs. You know, you live, you, you, but you, you, you but you live in gentrified Harlem. I'm you sorry. You can't take the suburbs out of the girl. Man. I love Dearly. my people, but you know, I can't run from my upbringing. That's who I am. I um, our esteemed guest is here. Perfect. So Charles Blow is an esteemed author and columnist in the New York Times, one of the leading Black voices in the conversations we're having around the country about race ethnicity, equity, and politics. Charles, man, how are you? I know, I mean, you're, the book, did the book drop this week? It was last, we third, last Tuesday. Last week, last Tuesday. So the book's and it's out. already I, top on Amazon, top nonfiction, right? Yes, it, it's been floating around the top set of the list. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Right? Thanks to all you people who, who bought this book. Thank you. No, well, it's an excellent book. How is, how is book touring in COVID world? What's that look like? I assume it's a lot of this. It is a lot of this, and 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 I thought it would be so much easier because you can just do it all from your house, but it is just as exhausting. <laughs> this book was so, so, so powerful. It was that beautiful space of thought-provoking, beautifully written, powerful. It was everything that I look for in a book, and I was thinking it's been years since I felt this way about anything, and I felt similarly about your first book. But you are a beautiful writer. I mean, you 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 remind me of Toni Morrison in the sense that I just I read you for the pleasure of reading you. I'll read the same passage over and over again because I enjoy it so much. Um, so I just I want. I appreciate it, know. but I am no Toni Morrison. Well, <laughs> from from the bottom of my heart, and I mean that you are you are a tremendous writer. So I just wanted to um, you know give you your flowers on that. Thank because, you so as much. We all know writing is the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, Charles Charles was like, "You're not getting me in trouble with that." My place in it is not on Tony's level. <laughs> no, but, but Charles, I do really, I do really like reading you long form, and this is no, that's no shade to your New York Times columns or anything like that. But I, but I do really like, uh, you know, as folks who've written books, it can be so hard sometimes to sustain argument, to sustain prose over sixty thousand words or whatever it is, right? And, and, and so, uh, but when the idea is big enough, you need that space. And, and what I, what I appreciate about this book is that it does make a bold argument, historically informed about what needs to happen in this moment for black people to seize back their political power. Why did you write this book? What's the argument you're making? Right, so the argument is, is rather simple to me, which is that at the end of the Civil War, three Southern states were majority black, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina. There were another three that were, were within four percentage points of being majority black. Every Southern state, 
had large percentages of Black people because 90% of all Black people in America lived in the South. And so if you had not, if the Great Migration had not happened, big if, it, but the, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act had still been passed, also big ifs, uh, Black people could control up to 14 Senate seats. They could control uh, more electoral college votes than New York State and California uh, combined. Uh, they, there would not have been, uh, if they voted over that same period the same way that they vote now, there would not have been a Republican president in the last 50 years. Uh, and if that were the case, the entire Supreme Court would look different because uh, I'm not, I don't think that there's anyone on the Supreme Court who was appointed uh, over 50 years ago. What I'm saying to Black people is if you reverse the Great Migration, and there are a lot of compelling reasons to do so other than political power, but with political power as one of your factors, you two states where you're already 25 to 33% of the population. It doesn't take a lot of you to completely change the political calculus of those states where black people are the majority of the coalitions that deliver the states for in presidential races, that they you have a much greater chance of electing senators who are black or who are, are um are aware of and responsive to issues uh, that the black community cares about. You get to reshape uh, criminal, the criminal code, which is mostly written at the state level. You need to directly address uh, mass incarceration, which is mostly a state and local issue, uh, on and on and on down the line. There's a reason that the United States is called the United States of America, it's the Federation of States. Uh, the Constitution explicitly says, you know, whatever powers are not expressly given to the federal government are reserved for the states. The states hold half the power in this equation. Um, and a lot of it that touches your body. And that is power that you can have right now without an armed insurrection, without anything illegal, using the very mechanisms of power that were used to suppress you, you can use them to liberate you by using the constitution. Charles, one of the things that I found most interesting about the book as you know, a, a lifetime Northerner, you know, I was raised in Maryland, which uh, was part of the union, but was south of Mason-Dixon. Um, but I do consider myself a Northerner because I've lived in New York longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life. And I had these assumptions about the South that I didn't even realize I had until I started reading your book. And you take them down one by one. There's a perception among some Blacks who have always lived in Northern states that it is better to be Black in the North than in the South. That there are all these vestiges of slavery and racism and lynchings and violence in the South, all these ghosts that are inescapable there that you can kind of get away from you know, geographically, just by creating some distance between yourself and the land where your ancestors suffered so painfully. And you break all that down. You say, no, anything south of the Canadian border is the south, meaning the entire United States. Right. That's Malcolm and X's it's all quote. the same. Yes. So, so what are the specific arguments that you come, come up to that people say, well, you know, for jobs, for housing, for incarceration, for police violence, you know, all the reasons that people feel safer in the North, you you knock them down. They're just completely untrue. Right. So if you look at home ownership, uh, uh, in many ways, it is greater for Black people in the in the South than in the North, largely because uh, 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 cost of owning a home is very expensive in places like D.C. or in New York City. Uh it, when it comes to places the back middle class is thriving, uh, Forbes does this list, and half of the, the cities on that list are in the South. When you talk about uh, places, uh, regions of the country where uh, Black-owned businesses are thriving, the number one place for Black-owned businesses thriving is in the Southeast of America. Uh, uh, when you talk about uh, the growth in median household incomes, that is led by the South for Black people. Um, uh, in addition to that, things like mass incarceration, if you look at what people like to do is say the incarceration rate is very high in these southern states. The problem is with that is they're locking up everybody. They're locking up a bunch of white people, too. 
right? So <laughs> what you have to do is say per capita, of the black people you have, what percentage of the black people in your state are you locking up? The Southern states barely make that list. Vermont leads that list for black men. Wow. So Charles, what would be the, where, where should I move tomorrow? What would be the three states, right? In terms of like actualizing this, is it still, uh, is it still Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, South Carolina? Is it a different, are we going to Georgia? Like what, what does this actually look like? So I, I, I uh, don't have three states. I say I line up nine target states. Uh, there are 15 uh, states in the South, not all of them are on my list. Florida's not, Texas is not. But Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, Virginia, uh, I'm gonna miss something, Maryland, and Delaware. People forget that the Census Bureau considers Delaware a Southern state. They also mm -hmm. forget that Delaware is the eighth blackest state in America. Also, very it's, black. yes, and very tiny. It doesn't take a lot of black people to make Delaware a majority black state. I'm gonna insert a little bit of my own experience into, into this thought experiment, right? Um, I grew up and am currently living in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania which uh, as we've talked about on, on the show before has the distinction of statistically being one of the worst places for African-Americans to live. I've also lived in Atlanta, Georgia, which was in the, at the, you know, at the center of political inf influence in, in, the, in the Confederacy and through segregation. Uh, but the two cities have very different, uh, very different present uh, iterations in terms of quality of life for African-Americans. Um, all, dis, despite the, you know, the, the, the difference ge geographically. But one of the challenges, and, and help me walk through this, is that the Great Migration hap was, was a result of many different things, including the, you know, the want of a better life, the want to, to leave the, the, the sharecropper system, the want to leave the, the old plantations, the agrarian way of life, and to try to find uh, economic prosperity, if not social equity in, in, the, in the North, right? And so in some ways, the Great Migration was a, was a reflection of an organic uh, demographic mass movement. I don't know, and I could be wrong, but I don't know that people in mass make decisions about where they're going to live based on overall political considerations at the 10,000 foot view um, in, in the way that you, you sort of propose or, or lay out in, in this book. Do you think it's realistic? Well, I want to answer a question you didn't necessarily ask directly, but you had in your statement, which was you did not believe that a group of people would move primarily for political reasons. Well, let me explain to you at one time that people actually did do that. And they were not Black, they were white. Uh, in 1972, the early 1970s, I think it's 1972, two young white uh, Yale, uh, uh, Yale law students published an article in the, the Yale Law Review called Jamestown 70. And in it, they argue that at the time there were massive protests against the Vietnam War by, by young white hippies. It was violent at times. It, there were massive protests at times. And they were uh, kind of hitting their heads against the wall because Nixon continued to execute the war the way that they wanted, he wanted to, including um, instituting the draft. And these young, two young students argued, there's no way you're gonna get ahead and gain any real, real political power doing what you're doing. And, and an armed uh, uh, rebellion is not gonna work because they have the US military. But what you can do is what they call radical federalism you can take over a state and they promote, propose Vermont because it was one of the smaller states. Uh, this, this, kind of, this article languished there. Nobody really did anything with it, took it seriously until another writer, more uh, prominent writer, picked it up and wrote an article in Playboy. And yes, people did really used to read the Playboy for the article sometimes. Right. That is, people, don't, people don't get that, but it was actually a very... You know, a lot of famous writers wrote for Playboy. Uh, and he wrote under the title, 
take over Vermont. And he laid out the math and how many people it would take. And young white hippies by the tens of thousands picked up their things and moved to Vermont. And they didn't always even have a place to stay. Some of them slept in fields. Some of them created communes just so they could have a place to live with a roof over their head. But they did it specifically with, pol with political intentionality. And they changed Vermont from one of the most conservative states in America to now one of the most liberal states in America. It is the state that gives us Bernie Sanders. It is the state that Barack Obama in 2008 won his highest percentage of the white vote of any state in this country. They basically changed Vermont from New Hampshire into Vermont. So it is not without precedent that people would do this specifically for a political reason. And I look, I'm saying to black people, these young white people did it. I think one of the questions becomes, is there a population of Black Americans who are mobile in such a way, who have the money and the resources and the job flexibility and the ability to move to another place like that? Um, it, you know, how, what does that look like? Uh, because, you know, like I, got, I got a good friend who's just up in the Vermont ski mountains right now for COVID. Um, he's also like a white guy who's got some money. Well, well, put it this way, um, migrations in America and in fact around the world are always about young people who are relatively unencumbered, starting their lives with the flexibility they can start those lives pretty much anywhere. It is not necessarily that they have tons of money to do it. When people migrated from the South to the North, they didn't come with, with suitcases full of money. They had no idea where they were going. Many of them had never seen snow before. Many of them had never walked on a sidewalk before. They had no idea where they were gonna live. The motivating factors for movement uh, are, is there something pushing you or something pulling you? In the great migration, what pushed was racial terror, but they had endured racial terror in the South for 50 years after the, great Mi after the Civil War was over and they still had stayed put. There was an attachment to land, there was an attachment to the economy, there was family there, that was what they knew. But when the boll weevil infection came in in the early uh, 2010s uh, and, you know, kind of crashed the cotton economy, all of a sudden, not only was there terror, but there was also like harder, it was harder to make a living. And at the very same time, northern industry needed more bodies. Young white men had gone away to fight in World War I. And so they sent recruiters down to the South to recruit people, including black people. And many of them said, I have fewer opportunities here. The North is beckoning. And they say, I don't know it, but they say there it's freer there. And that is, was the push and pull for them. I suggest that there's a similar push pull that's happening now. Much of the militarization of policing and, and over and hyper policing of black bodies has occurred in Northern and Western cities. If you look at the places right now under consent decrees, only two of those places are in the South. All of those places are in North and Western cities. When you look at the most high profile case, the majority of them are in Northern and Western cities. If you look at stop and frisk, that didn't happen in Greensboro or Birmingham or, or, or Little Rock. That happened in New York and was exported to California, to, to Los Angeles and to Chicago. When you look at SWAT teams, they were created in California in part in a response to the Black Panthers. So you have that ambient threat of police violence, but people stay just like people stayed with lynching. But then along came, comes something unexpected that crashes an economy. And what is that for us now? That's a pandemic that has been particularly brutal on destination cities. So in the second quarter of last year, which was at the height of the pandemic, when we closed, well, it wasn't the height of the cases, but it was the height of our reaction to it. The economy basically closed, all society basically closed. And at that time, I looked at unemployment rate for black people in cities around the country. They were disastrous in these cities in the North and West. The unemployment rate for black people in Chicago rose to three times the unemployment rate for black people in Atlanta. So I believe that that can be just a little nudge of a push 
that the same way that people in the South needed a nudge of a push. Charles, one of the things that you talked about that we have touched upon before um, on this podcast and, and again tonight is this, you call it vicarious traumatization of watching these death videos of mostly black men being shot at the hands of police. And you tie it to the effect that the photos of lynchings had on black communities, the way that one lynching would have ripple effects psychologically to the entire community, even with those who did not see it or have any connection to the victim. How do you see the impact of, of everything that we're seeing right now? What effect do you think that these videos is having on us and seeing this over and over again? Well, in a way it, it, it has, it, the, the, the scale of the violence is smaller, but the effect and reach of it is much larger. Right, so with you know as 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 many lynchings as there were in the South, uh, unless you were in that town at that time, you may not have seen it. You probably heard about it. It was you know talked about, whispered about, whatever, but you didn't have the image seared into your consciousness unless you were there. Uh, and in a way that they tried to promote the images was an old school way. It's the only technology they had. They took photographs, put those uh, often, put those on um, postcards. And so you could send the trauma. But even then it's going to one person and maybe, you know, somebody, you know, extended family sees it. So if 25 people sees it. What we're seeing is a very different phenomenon, which is millions of people not only see these killings once, but anytime they want to see them. Or they're streamed into your social media or across your televisions, even without warning, you're not wanting to see them, but it's just, it's part of the news. So it just keeps coming at you. And so that imprints on the brain. And so that is that collective traumatization. We are experiencing that, we're living through that. And so even though the number of Black people killed by the police doesn't rival the number of lynchings. The scale of the distribution is, uh, uh, you know, multiple times what the, what that image distribution was for lynchings. Mm. What's your personal position on watching those videos? Do you watch them? You know, I'm in the news business. I there's no way for me to write about uh, uh, black lives and civil rights and. Uh, police misconduct without seeing them. Uh, but it is, they do morph into a kind of uh, morbid theater and, and death pornography. Hmm. Um, can we talk about white women? <laughs> yes, you may. <laughs> because, no, I want you to talk about white women. Um, there's a, you know, a significant portion of the book that addresses the white supremacy that comes from white women. And one thing that you said, which like it stuck me, you know, it hit me right in the face, which I did not know about, was a, a market in breast milk that was created by white women um, to use the, the breast milk of, of the enslaved. Is that... Yes. Did I read, did I understand that correctly? That is, that is exactly right. It was considered declassé to breastfeed your own children. And so many uh, uh, women who were enslavers uh, would have their, have uh, enslaved women who had recently given birth um, uh, breastfeed their children. And in fact, they would stretch those women's lactating periods far longer than they would naturally have existed. So even if the, the enslaved woman's child no longer needed the milk, she might continue to basically milk this enslaved woman and sell that milk to other women. And, and how do you see white women as, a, as an arm of white supremacy today? Well, it's, it, well first of all, uh, it, white supremacy is not a masculine expression. It is a white expression, including a female expression. But people think of it as a masculine thing. I they, think they do. And I wanted to make sure that I said it was not. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Uh, you, got it. you got your point across. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and our current manifestation of it. So, so white women always activated the muscle of the terror. You know, or either they 
actively activated it themselves or allow themselves to be used as an activation, right? So a lot, tremendous amount of white terror is, is dedicated to white chivalry, that it is the protection of white femininity that some brute has raped or touched or disrespected a white woman. And so that became a power that a white woman had, even if she chose not to use it. It was a card, it was a trump card in the pocket. I scream, you die, right? And so that, the current manifestation of that is the use of 911 calls against black people, children sometimes, women sometimes, men other times. But when you look at the, at the, the cases of, you know, videos you see of people calling 911 on black people, disproportionate percentage of those are white women doing that. Yeah. Um, Charles, there was a part of the book that, that really touched me personally. Um, and I'd like to read a, a passage um, that you wrote. <clears throat> it is spiritually healthier to be in spaces, to create spaces where you are wanted, honored, and loved rather than ones where you are simply tolerated at best or worse yet despised. Integration has its virtues, but it can also inflict spiritual and psychological violence. Nine experiences may be lovely or at least tolerable, but the 10th is terrible. The mind settles on that 10th, using an extraordinary amount of energy to anticipate it, confront it, and overcome it. The unfortunate fraction becomes a consuming detriment. You know, can you just speak on that personally? Because as a black professional, I really do feel like I've reached that space where the amount of emotional and spiritual work that it takes to persist in an industry that doesn't value you because of the color of your skin is just, it feels like it's not worth it. Well, I'll just talk about it in the context of, of my children and education, right? So I grew up only in all black, all majority black spaces, majority black schools all the way through college. Uh, even when I first job was in Detroit, majority black city. And even when I moved to New York, I moved to Prospect Heights, which was majority black at the time. That was Shirley Chisholm's old district. Uh, but my children, um, you know, we are in New York, we're in Prospect Heights. The, 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 you know, you look at the list of the best schools, the, one of the best in Brooklyn is part in Park Slope. Uh, we ended up moving to Park Slope so they go to school there. So, cause I couldn't afford private schools at that time. Um, and so I see them negotiate these spaces where race becomes more of an issue. Uh, they question themselves so much that it is painful for me to watch because I'd never had that experience. Every room I ever walked into, a black person was the smartest person in that room educationally. So I always assumed that I could be the black person, the smartest person in the room. I have also have no baggage that I'm inferior to anybody. And I see my kids wrestle with this and, and become scarred by it in a way, scars that I never possessed. And I am completely conflicted because I'm thinking, what have you done? You know, on the one hand, yes, they have great facilities, you know, amazing instructors. On the other hand, what is a psychological toll of this? And am I right to have done it? And I'm still conflicted by it to this day. We do have one one news segment. Um, I would love for you to stay on for this. And if you have anything to chime in, please okay. do. Absolutely. Um, this is our first week doing this. We are highlighting Black creations that we love. Uh, this can be a book, it can be a movie, it can be a show, it can be a Black creator that you think we should all be aware of, but we want to make sure to amplify um, our family. So I have two selections this week. Uh, one is your book. Okay. So every everybody who is listening, please buy it, not only to support Charles, but because it's an excellent read and it's very thought-provoking and maybe you'll move to the South and have a great new life because of it. Um, and the other selection is the Crack documentary on Netflix. It's called Crack. I don't know if the filmmakers are black. However, it humanizes the black community's experience in the crack epidemic in the way that I've never seen before, especially that of women who ended up addicted to crack. Um, for example, one of the women that it features 
uh, was, you know, church going, you know, working middle class woman whose son died at five years old. And, you know, I have a six year old son. And when they showed his little face, I, I, I felt her pain. And she said, you know, using crack was the only thing that took her away from that pain. And a few years later, they made possession of crack a crime. And she spent the next 10 or 15 years bouncing in and out of prison because she had an addiction problem that stemmed from self-medicating a broken heart. Um, so it's just, it's an excellent documentary. I think uh, folks should watch it and it really sheds light on something that, that did so much damage to the community. Uh, Charles, anything that comes to mind for you that you love? I'm gonna um, give you an old book that is no longer even in print that I keep and I read all the time. It's like, well, you know how you have your uh, your comfort food books? You've already read it a zillion times. Yes. You pick it up, go to any page and just read something and go to sleep. This is my comfort food book. This It is called The Encyclopedia of Black Folklore and Humor. And it is just exquisitely written. Tons of little uh, short stories. There are even like recipes in there. It's just, it's an amazing little book. And when I read it, I, I kept thinking like some of these people's you know, amazing authors I've read, they must have read this book because some of the language is so specific that, and, and it helped me when I was writing my memoir actually, because you, it, re, it reminds you of a Southern dialect in a way that helps you to remember the way that it sounds. We're talking about black creators and you guys went to create creativity in the media space. I'm just going to go straight uh, product plug, um, Absolutely not a not a paid placement or not not an ad. Just something that I committed to in terms of self care this year. I started collecting fragrances by Black creators. Um, there's and found out that there's a huge space in that market. So I want to shout out two of them. Uh, my guy Sean Crenshaw uh, and and his line Ovation for Men. It's at Ovation for Men, um, as well as uh, as uh, Chris Classic down in Atlanta with his uh, line called Savoir Faire. Um, I just enjoy it. It's a self-care thing. I thought it was, I think it's fun. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.